Yo, yo. My guest this week is the current House Representative for the 41st District of Troy and Claussen, Michigan, which makes perfect sense. Even before holding office, she had many roles within the Troy, Michigan community, from PTA volunteer to founding member of the Troy Interfaith Group to board president for the Troy Historic Society. She's the first Hindu and the first Indian immigrant in the Michigan legislature. When I asked her how she won an election in a state that's 80% white, she attributed that deep involvement in the community to her win. She also shared her thoughts on avoiding overwhelm, which I certainly feel, given that so many political and national issues feel really pressing and urgent these days. She covered her journey moving back and forth between the U.S. and India. She talked about being the first ever female mechanical engineer out of NIT Warangal, which is a great engineering school in India. And she added her perspective to the last episode's topic about parenting. All great stuff. Without further ado, Padma Kupa, welcome to Brown People We Know. The Puppies for Padma campaign on your Instagram is incredible. I know that was part of your political career, but before we kind of dive into all of that, I just want to start at the beginning. So as we were just discussing, you, like me, have moved around quite a bit. The difference being that your movement was kind of back and forth between the U.S. and India. So can you describe those transitions and why your family was moving so much? Sure, sure. My parents were traditional South Indian. Academic achievement was the way and the husband was the working one and she was the housewife. And then my parents had a loss in their life and I was young. And so my dad decided he wanted to leave India and go to an English-speaking country because that was what his profession was. He had options between Australia and here, and I don't know what other countries, but the visa for the U.S. came first because back in 1969, the U.S. was pretty aggressive about bringing people from Asia after 1965's Immigration and Naturalization Act. My mother and I followed him soon after. He established himself, and then within eight months, I think, we were here. He came in September. We came the following July. I started kindergarten in Dogwood Elementary School, and I could barely speak English when I started. I spoke Kannada, Telugu, Hindi, and maybe even a bit of, I don't know what other language, but like, I could not speak English when I arrived. My mom always tells me about how she went through the German, uh, the Frankfurt airport, and she was afraid to ask any of those big German women for, because she's five foot and tiny. And, and so um, she was so afraid to ask them about buying me milk. And she was like, so, you know, whatever. So she came here. And then out of necessity, I mean, one graduate student salary is not enough to support three people. Plus, she had interest in education. She had done her BSc in Rajamundry Government Arts College and came from a family where her brothers were all engineers and her dad had actually originally wanted her to go into medicine, but he passed away. And that was why she was married so young. She had me before she turned 20. And so she, when I went to kindergarten and elementary school, she started taking classes and eventually enrolled in a PhD program herself in biochemistry, biology, biological research. And I used to hang out with her in the lab and then when she was done with the PhD and she's doing her postdoctoral work, 
my dad decided to go back to India because he wanted to research some Sanskrit and scholars in India as part of his research and writing. My mom and I were here alone with my baby brother who was born that year. And so in 1981, my parents were like, okay, we're going back because my dad didn't want to stay here and my mom didn't want to be here without family support and especially with the new baby and all of that. So she wanted to be with all of her siblings. So we went back. I was not a happy camper. I was 15, just been displaced by a one-year-old brother, right? I realized going in that I wanted to come back. And so I spent the next seven years feeling like a square peg in a round hole. And um, the only thing I knew was America wanted doctors and engineers. That's what my parents always told me. I hated the sight of blood. So I decided I was going to go into engineering, not realizing that there are very few girls in engineering, especially in those days. But I managed to get into a decent engineering college, got into NIT Warangal. It's actually one of the best. Um, I didn't get into an IIT. But I got into NIT Wrangell and it took me twice to get in because I was a non-local. I had to get a higher rank to get into that school. And so then I went in and I went in with a, I think either chemical or something like that. And I wasn't sure because my rank, even though if you'd been born and raised in India, you would have gotten like electronics. I couldn't get that because I was spent so many years here. So I hated India even for that, right? Like everything about India was wrong. And then I went to engineering and I was the only girl in mechanical engineering when I decided to switch at the end of first year, I switched and I was the only girl and the guys weren't that nice to me. There's no, you know, like the kind of stuff that goes on here with sexual assault, none of that at all. But just, I, I was the odd man out always, but eventually got comfortable, but I knew I wanted to come back. And so I got my foreign student visa. So I came back and I realized that the years I spent in India really shaped me. Going to college in NIT Warangal with people from all over the country, 50% of the people come from all around India and 50% are from the local university, that particular state. And so most of the states in India are divided up by language. So I got a chance to meet people from all walks of life, all backgrounds. The topper in my class, he'd actually failed intermediate, which is like plus two, like high school. Twice he was from a farming family and not very affluent. And I met so many people like that. One of the first people I talked to was from UP and his family had like dairy farms or something. And then some of the guys that I bonded with and did some of the, you know, school competitions, college competitions and clubs with, they were all from Hyderabad. And one of them, his mom had been my math teacher when I was in high school. Just, it was, it was a nice camaraderie. Like I wanted to get away from it. But once I came here, I realized there were some good things about it. The other great thing about being there was that the pluralism in India is inherent through the ethos. Like Hinduism is to me something that my father always talked about when I was growing up because I didn't grow up with any temple really nearby. It wasn't built until 1976, the first one that I saw. And I never thought there were that many Indian people in this country until I went to the Queen's Temple in, in Flushing, the uh, consecration of that. And my father always talked about Hinduism and the philosophy and tried to like teach me. And my mom always did pujas and rituals. And so my understanding of Hinduism was more through their way of living it as Hindus in America. And it was much more eclectic because my parents' close friends were Konkani Catholic, so Indian Catholic and Jewish and agnostic and 
kind of hippie kind of friends my dad had. And so I really went to India and then I really experienced pluralism in its ethos and how you learn to be Hindu through osmosis. So India is a very different place, right, from here. Coming back, did you experience any culture shock, even though it seemed like your aspiration was to always come back? Yeah, so I did experience culture shock because I really had a hard time trying to figure out who I was. And so I ended up going back to the Queen's Temple in Flushing and feeling more connected, sort of trying to find that balance. And I think by the time my parents kept on telling me to meet this guy or meet that guy because they were trying to get me to pair up as all Indian parents do, two of my girlfriends had kind of yelled at me. It's like, take this seriously, this next guy that you meet. And so when I first started talking to my husband, he had worked in India and then come here. We got to talking and, and I gave the story away already. Um, we got to talking, we got engaged, we got married a year later. And I think that really helped. Just he let me be. He didn't try to judge. And he was one of the first people that really understood how hard it was for me to go back to India at the age of 15. A lot of people didn't understand even people who were from India or from here, how hard it was to make that transition. And I think that acceptance and understanding around that really helped shape my appreciation and willingness to engage with him. It's kind of weird, right? Because I think people often don't realize that being Indian American or kind of when you blend the two, you're really creating something that's different from either, right? It's not Indian. It's not American. Right. So we, we got married in 92. We had our daughter in 95, our son in 98. And then we moved to Michigan because we were looking. He's an engineer. You know, how they match you up is they look at your profession and they look at the career and educational accomplishments of the eligible parties. And my requirement was that he knows how to cook and he's taller than me. <laughs> I mean, I wanted a lot more in the laundry list, but, you know, we won't go there. I think there's always a honeydew list, right? <laughs> but when our kids were born and we were thinking about settling down, in 98, we came looking at houses here in Michigan because he had an opportunity to move. And I had gotten my green card by then, and he got his green card with me in 97. And so then well, we decided to move here because the housing was affordable, plus it was the home of the auto industry. Like, what better job could I get as a mechanical engineer? Um, he's also an industrial engineer. He designs safety restraint systems. Yeah. So in 1998, you moved to Troy. You're an engineer for a while. Did you at that time realize that you would someday go into politics? Was that an aspiration at all? Never. No, I thought politics was dirty. I had no, I mean, I had been asked to run for something. I'd go to Arangate drums and I would go to, uh, you know, gatherings and people would say, Padma, you should run for mayor. Padma, you should run for council. In fact, one of the former superintendents of Troy told me to run for council when I was thinking about running for school board. And then I abandoned that because in 2005, I actually started an interfaith organization in Troy. So there was a National Day of Prayer organized by somebody, and they didn't want anybody but Christians there. And I was like, wait, that's, and this is a city event. I'm like, First Amendment, this is a, we've got a synagogue, we've got a temple, we've got people of all faiths. Why wouldn't you have an inclusive event? And when I went to volunteer, they were like, nope, you can't. This is our organization, our event. So then the city was like, well, okay, we're not going to be a sponsor anymore. And that was a little bit of a controversy over that. But then we formed the Interfaith Group. And so that was sort of my life for the next 15 years, or at least 
10 years from 2005 till 2015, I was very, very involved, 17 even, I was very involved in the regional interfaith scene. Got involved with the Hindu American Foundation because I realized that a lot of people don't even understand how to explain Hinduism. And so I was just doing whatever came next, the next right thing, right? It was never about seeking power. It was just to serve. If there was a need, I filled it. And so you've volunteered with the PTA. You've found, you were a founding member for the Interfaith Association. You were the planning commissioner for Troy for a while. You, you were already really involved in the community. I know that people had approached you to, to run for mayor and stuff, but why, why did you decide to go that route? 2016, we had been driving through Ohio for some reason. I don't remember what it was. We had gone for some HAF event. I had gone to, I think, Cincinnati. And we saw the signs. We saw the Trump signs. And I was like, hmm. And I went to bed on election day at about 10 o'clock. I didn't expect a better outcome. And so I woke up the next morning and I, I had to go to a nonprofit event, had its big fundraiser that day. So I went to that. But I came back to work on Thursday and realized that people were really divided. And so I just tried to do the things I was continuing to do to build relationships, to get people to not be so polarized. And then in 17, Betsy DeVos got confirmed as Secretary of Education. And I would go to work, come home. I had been working in the auto industry, and I was actually at Ally Financial at that point. My son had graduated high school, and watching these hearings, I'd come home, and it was just me and my husband. He'd be like, why are you crying? <laughs> and I'd be like, I was sleepless. I really was. It kept me up at night. And so then I started thinking about what do I do? And so I said, let me go to seminary. So I started investigating because I'd already been to seminary. During the economic downturn, I'd actually gone to seminary. It was a long story. Like they wanted me to be the chaplain at Oakland University. Somebody had invited me. I was like, I don't have any qualifications. <laughs> Let me go get some qualifications. I'm laid off. Let me go. And so I actually was very fascinated by the seminary. I thought, okay, this is good. I'll do a second career and it'll be about building relationships. I'm really good at this idea of interfaith dialogue and writing and it'll help me. And then as I was doing that, different people approached me again and like, why don't you run for state rep? I had been asked. Rashida Tlaib actually was the first one in December of 2013. I had a one-on-one with her and she's like, why don't you run? Stephanie Chang is running in 2014. Her, she was term limited. It was her last year is 2013. And so she's like, Stephanie Chang is running in 14. Um, you, should, you should run. You know, you'll do a great job together. Well, Stephanie moved to Detroit because that's where she lived. And so even though she was from Canton, from the suburbs, and I still had kids in high school at that point, right? And so I was like, no, I can't do it. And they also say women have to be asked multiple times before they have the confidence to do it. Somebody asked me, a friend of mine asked me in 2014, she was actually in the state house as well, in 15 or 16, I, she asked me to run in 16. And then 17, somebody asked me again. And so I was like, you know what? This is how I can make a difference is all politics is local. I can't change what's going on at D.C. with the Secretary of Education and all of that. But I can make sure that we correct what we're doing to public education here in the state of Michigan. The year that you ran, several other South Asians ran for office. So like Aditi Bagchi, Anuja Rajendra, Shrita Nedar, who's this multimillionaire entrepreneur, Sunil Gupta, who's the brother of Sanjay Gupta of CNN. And yet, none of them actually won their elections. You were the only one that year that came through. And so I'm, I'm wondering, do you see there being 
especially in, in a primarily white state like Michigan, do you see there being a barrier for Indian Americans to enter American politics? No, I think the issue is not so much a barrier because of our race as much as it is our being a member of the community. I don't think anybody ever thought of me as that candidate who's different. I think they thought of, oh, Padma, she's one of us. Because for 20 years, I'd been in the community actively engaged. This was a district that had never been Democrat before. One of the things that I think was really instrumental in our situation was that even Republicans knew who I was, and they trusted me more than they probably trusted my opponent. The other thing is that they knew my values, and I think politics should be and is about shared values. I usually try to explain my position and, and how I believe that we need to find common ground. And I think that really appeals to people, but also it's what I'd been doing for 20 years. You know, whether it was in the PTA or on planning commission, right, or in the interfaith setting, trying to find, like, we're never going to agree on everything. Two people aren't going to agree on everything. My husband and I don't agree on everything. So to me, it's really about trying to find, okay, we can agree to disagree, but here's where we can agree and let's move this forward, right? Whether it's public education, whether it's about roads, I mean, that's how they formed the ACA. Think about it. The ACA was a compromise. Even navigating the issue of LGBTQ marriage equality. I remember one of my friends, Ken Flowers, he's the head of a Baptist church here in Michigan. He was a member of, I think, ACLU. But Ken was great because Ken Flowers, Reverend Flowers said about the decision, he says, I believe in the Supreme Court's decision in marriage equality. But my faith teaches me that I don't want to marry two people of the same sex. But I believe that they should have the right to do so if they want to. And I think that respecting his opinion, I might think differently. I might say my faith doesn't object to that the way his did, but I can understand, you know, that's his face. But let's not subject anybody to my faith restrictions or his faith restrictions. When you were running for election, Yes, you were already in the community. People already knew you. But now you have to do social media and really put yourself out there and be much more public. Was that uncomfortable for you at first or did it feel pretty natural? So I always tell people like when if anyone asks, if you want to go into politics, first, you have to be ready that your job is not secure. You have to apply for it every two years or every whatever number of years. It's not I wouldn't when these parents think that, OK, my kids should go into politics. Like, Think twice what you mean by that doing policy behind the scenes, being, you know, in some other aspect of government might be easier. But I think that I always shut down when I'm in front of a camera. Just talking, having a real conversation is so much easier. But like when I go knock on doors or when I call constituents, it's so much more interesting to hear, like, what are the things that keep them up at night? The way that Betsy DeVos and that confirmation hearing kept me up at night. I'm getting better. But like when the camera is trained on me, I become very uptight. So I always tell people, if you want to run for office, get in front of a camera from a young age and get used to it. Some of the House bills that you've sponsored and worked on have helped people with pre-existing conditions get access to health care. You've helped with preventing polluters from sitting on environmental rules panels. Do you find that your time in India has influenced your policies and, and some of the positions that you've taken? Oh, very much. I think the belief in 
public education as secular public education, that every child should have opportunity and it should not be governed by how much money their parents have. It should not be based on zip code is really important to me. I see in my own district, uh, the two cities that I represent have two completely separate school districts. And one of the cities actually has other touch points, but, but I see the per pupil funding is based on property values. And then we, we base special needs as a percentage of our per pupil funding. Like the math in that makes no sense to me. So you're telling me that if I live in a poor neighborhood with less property values, that I should get less money to educate a child? I somehow don't agree. I understand that everybody's gonna have different kinds of privilege. I have an engineering degree. I can help my kids and I speak English with an American accent. I have a great command of English because my father is an English professor. I was reading John Milton and Paradise Lost when I was in middle school or in seventh grade, right? Like the, the, these were my summer reading assignments from dad, forget about school, right? And so <laughs> I think it just makes such a big difference when you don't start out with like a, a baseline formula that makes sense. And India, it was really about like, how well did you interview? How well did your kid interview? And how much money did you have to give? And there's no transparency, right? Whereas here, public education, I know where my tax dollars are going. I know how they're being spent. I know what the standards are classroom to classroom. We have statewide standards. And, I, and we have people in the community who are our school board members who are representing us. And so we can go voice to them the concerns that we have. And I think public education is a beautiful thing when it works right. And I think we need to, that was, that's really a value that I have is that every child is deserving of opportunity. And I believe that the whole world is a family. And when we talk about the whole world, it includes the planet. This earth that we inhabit, we have to share resources and we have to protect them. And so this idea of Bhumi, you know, when my daughter or anybody does classical Indian dance, they ask Bhumi Mata for forgiveness for the missteps that I make as I dance. And I think that that is such an important part of my understanding of how I treat the planet, whether or not you believe in the science of climate change. I think we should use our resources wisely. I, I think that clean drinking water, access to clean drinking water is so critical. And a country like ours, if we can't provide it, like what, you know, just like, how can we not provide everybody clean access to clean drinking water? What happened in Flint, Michigan should not happen to anybody in this country. It can often feel like there are a lot of pressing issues, right? Climate change, education, equal pay, access to health care. How do you keep your sanity about you when you're looking at all these different things? I know that's something that I sometimes struggle with is just the sense of overwhelm. Yeah, I do sometimes feel overwhelmed. There's no question. But I think having a good sadhana of something, whether it's reading so that you're not always working on these same issues or having a meditation practice or maybe listening to whatever it is that calms your mind and centers you. I always try to find things that I can do to center myself. During the pandemic, one of the most difficult things for me was nobody knows how many calls we got and how many people reached out for help and talking to some of the constituents and hearing the stories. Um, 
you really like I, I care, right? And I think that that idea of compassion and caring that I was taught from an early age that my parents modeled for me, but also the idea that you can do anything that my mother, you know, my mother was that I am woman, I am invincible. And so I think that just having that strength, inner strength, and also being able to multitask and just sort of juggle different things because I've had to, I've, you know, again, going back to that third culture kid concept where you're trying to navigate different worlds, but it does, it does become tiring. I look at Obama and how he aged so much in those eight years. Believe me, I understand. Yeah. So I I do want to touch on that concept of you can do anything. So I, I have a quote from you. Indian American women face the same challenges as most women, but sometimes it seems like it is even more because of the patriarchy that we experience in our culture. One of the, the reason I bring that up is because it alludes to these barriers that you may have had along the way. One of the things that strikes me is you were the first woman to graduate with a mechanical degree from NIT. You're the first Hindu and Indian immigrant in the Michigan legislature. As you were studying to earn your degree, as you were running for election, did you ever feel discouraged by the fact that you were the first in those positions? And then once you earned them, did you ever feel additional pressure to represent? Oh, yeah. I've had so many people ask me, so what have you done for the Indian community? Right. And my job as the representative for the 41st district is to serve the 41st district, the people of Troy and Clausen. The way that I serve the Indian community is by being the best person I am and doing the best job I can. I'm a brand ambassador, right? I am a Hindu. I am an Indian. I am a woman. And when I say Indian, I'm not really an Indian, right? I, I'm, I'm an Indian American, but I'm of Indian origin. It's, it's visible, right? It's very visible that I'm of Indian origin. And so I think that's the important part is that I'm always true to who I am and being, being the best that I can be is the best way to do something for the Indian community. And I think I said it the other day, the in Michigan Indian American Democratic Caucus had a town hall with me. And they, they, they asked me exactly that question. They're like, oh, you had this opportunity to run and you're serving. And I'm like, it's something I earned. And it was hard because I had to give up so many years. My kids used to say to me, mom, this school year, can you be home two nights a week for dinner? Right? Can you be home? Like I... My husband would get home, or I sometimes even when I got home from work, I would rush out the door for another meeting. And sometimes I dragged them with me if it was an event that they could go to. I mean, one time I planned this interfaith retreat, and they sat in the synagogue with coloring books on their half day and their homework, you know? So that was the kind of stuff they did. And so, I mean, yeah, I, I faced barriers, but I think it's all for the good in the sense that me being the woman to do mechanical engineering meant that other women would follow. My mom always set that example. She was the first one in her family to get a PhD. She didn't let anything stop her. My dad didn't know how to fix anything in the house and she was more mechanically inclined. And I remember her getting up and she never wore anything but a sari. I remember her getting up on top of the roof to fix the antenna back in the seventies. So 
she could do anything and so could I. And, and I think also our mythology in the Hindu tradition, our stories, they teach us a lot about the strength, the Shakti, right? The, and I always believe that we have that Shakti. We be, if we believe in ourselves, we have that Shakti. And I think that's something that was reinforced going to school here where, you know, the whole point of democracy, one voice can make a difference. Your vote does make a difference. That is the synthesis of what I learned through my traditions, whether cultural or religious, and also through the culture that I lived in and I'm part of. And I think that that indomit what is it the the spirit is not defeatable, indefeatable or whatever the word is, right? The my father would be so embarrassed. Don't put this on air, okay? Please don't include this. <laughs> um, your brother so kind of shifting gears now to, to to family i know we've touched on it throughout the podcast but uh he's much younger than you and he grew up in india whereas you kind of grew up here now now that he's also in the u.s do you see a lot of differences between how much you two value retaining culture and how you go about parenting some i think more that he grew up in a very patriarchal culture i mean i have to say even though my mom was so much a free spirit in doing things she still was very traditional roles in family and i remember her criticizing me for referring to my husband not in the respectful form like miru um i call him nubu and sort of singular right and and so she didn't like that so my brother comes a little bit from that kind of that upbringing, whereas I grew up without those kinds of restrictions. He also grew up with sort of a joint family. My grandmother lived with them for much more of, of his life. You know, I grew up here with no extended family almost, right? So different different experience. Plus he lived in a different time, right? This is the the era I lived. There was no internet. Not that there was much when he, but he came here in 2002 and so there's much more technology. And my parents had much more affluence when he was growing up than when I was growing up. They were grad students in the United States. Um, we know the acronym for that, <laughs> poor Indian graduate students. Whereas they were settled in their careers by the time he remembers anything. And so he grew up much more in, in a position of affluence. And I think that makes a difference as well. It makes a huge difference. I, I see that with my sister and myself as well, actually. You can, you can very much tell that I'm an immigrant. I, there are certain things, for example, the way that I treat money. I think it's evolved over time and, and I've kind of come into my own. But when I was younger, I very much had my, my parents' principles, where she kind of grew up. Once my parents had made it a little bit, you can see in her spending habits that she comes from a very different Yep. Yep. Um, exactly. Background. Exactly. <laughs> and so I think that makes a little bit of a difference. He knows how to to move around in those social silos much more than I do. Um, even though he was born here and he can be the president and I can't, I always hold that against him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but he didn't have to go through the whole green card process as I did. I always tell my kids actually, not my brother so much. I had to say I would give up my life for this country when I became a US citizen, that I would serve and I would give up my life. Anyone who's naturalized does. Anyone who's born here doesn't. So I think sometimes that you value the red, white, and blue more and what the promise of America is um, 
you know, we passed right to work in Michigan. Do you remember reading the stories about the labor movement? My father made me read the jungle. Like it was important to me because you see in other countries how people are treated who are doing labor and the importance of valuing work and the importance of having a work ethic as an immigrant, right? I mean, those are important to me. And as we see it dwindling before our eyes right now, it's, it's easy, it, it is easy to become overwhelmed, but then you remember that the human spirit is enduring and that you remember that the values and the ideals that we're fighting for are worth fighting for. And you keep going. That's interesting because it sounds like that is something that you're trying to pass on to your children as well, right? Like the grad, the sense of gratitude for being here. Uh, one of the things that I talked with Bobby about in the last episode is the relationship between parent and child. When you look at Indian parents, they're can sometimes be the kind of this disciplinarian relationship, whereas I think the second generation or the generation that comes to America, they start to kind of see themselves as a friend or, or as something different. So how would you describe your relationship? I with think it's children? a little bit of both. Um, I'm very, I'm a Leo, very fierce mom. Um, one of my girlfriends, when I was pregnant with my daughter, she's like, oh my God, you're going to be a Leo. You're, you're a Leo. You're going to be a, a very overprotective mother. And I think for a while I was, but then I also gave them a lot more freedom than a lot of their peers who had Indian parents. I remember when my daughter was in high school and she had a boyfriend and he wasn't Indian and a bunch of the Indian kids, high school seniors, she was, I think in junior year and the seniors, I knew all of them because I would volunteer at the dances and whatever else, right? So they all knew me. One of them came up to me, Padmanti, Padmanti, Shukri has a boyfriend. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and they're like, it's, it's Michael. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> Did that bother your husband at No, all? I told you. He's a very live and let live. But I think that's the, the difference that a lot of, um, and I, I know, I remember my parents being angry when I had projects with boys or something. And I would say, well, I have a project with, with Catherine, but it was really like, Kevin, right? And, and, and hiding those things. I know. And I, I know a lot of people, especially girls who had to do things like that. And so, and I saw that even when I was in grad school, I saw the undergraduate girls hiding things from their parents in college in Stony Brook when I was in grad school. And so I realized that that wasn't how I wanted my kids. Like, I'd rather know whatever it is that you're doing. You need a ride home from a party? Let me know. Be upfront sense of trust definitely needs to be there. Yeah. So before my final question, I, I do want to read out one more quote from you. The people who inspire me, men and women, are typically not celebrities. They're the people doing grassroots work whose names aren't easily recognized, but they're doing some of the most important community building work. This quote is from you, but I think it also does a great job of summarizing your work thus far. Um, you've been very hands-on and grassroots, like going door to door, right? Do you have any plans for the future in terms of are you hoping to run again? Do you do you aspire to get involved in federal government? I, honestly, after this term, I don't know what I'm doing. The seminary always beckons. I was very involved in trying to set up the North American Hindu 
sort of the three pieces of chaplaincy. So like a, an, an endorsing body, an accrediting body, and the chaplaincy program itself. And now finally we have enough, this was in 2012, and now we have enough a momentum that they've actually started the, the North American Hindu Chaplains Association. And there are Hindu chaplains in a number of schools. I think that one of the, the gaps I see for, for Indian American people who are Hindu is that we don't have that transition. There are, because there are Muslim groups, there are Sikh groups, but there aren't really any Hindu groups. So I don't know if that's one space that I would go to, or if I would go turn to writing. Um, I do enjoy writing, but I know that I'll always serve in some fashion. And I don't know what that looks like after November 2020. Thanks for coming on, Padma. Really appreciate this. You're the first politician we've had. I don't like calling it politician. I prefer public servant or public official or elected official. And maybe that's wrong, but I, I just I feel like it doesn't do justice to the work that we do. And not everybody's doing that work, so I understand. But I think that is the idea. This is not about power. This is about service. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks again. Yeah, you're welcome. Have a good night. Off to see the debate. <laughs> <laughs>